The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Um, It occurred to a few of us back in the UK that what has changed our culture's position on homosexuality is largely narrative. Uh, Countless times through movies, through TV shows, through novels, through stories, through news items, we've been fed a very particular kind of narrative. Someone is, is in the closet and repressed. They eventually come out, embrace their new identity, and flourish as a result. Uh, That is the narrative we have been imbibing and and breathing in over these last years. And it is that kind of narrative that has changed people's minds. And so it occurred to a number of us back home that the best response to narrative is narrative. And actually, if narrative is changing people's minds and just responding with, here are five reasons homosexual practice isn't right from the New Testament, is it's bringing a What's that thing where you bring the wrong weapon to a gunfight or whatever that phrase is? We don't do guns in the UK, so I've no idea what that is. But you know what I mean. And so one of the things we need to do as Christians is to show that we have better stories. And so what we're trying to do with this website is to gather testimonies of Christians who have had experiences of homosexuality but who are being faithful to Christ and flourishing because of that. And I'd love for you to to look at those uh, stories. We've had them all filmed. They've been filmed in such a way that we hope you can show a clip of it easily in your church meeting. And uh, I love hearing those stories myself. It gives me no end of encouragement, and I hope they'll encourage you as well. We're thinking this evening about truths same-sex attracted Christians need to hear. Um, There was a a TV series a, a while ago, I think on the BBC, called 100 Things to See Before You Die. And uh, it had things like the Grand Canyon and Stonehenge and and all these kinds of things. And it was so successful that it then spawned another hundred things to see before you die, just in case you end up living a bit longer than you thought you were going to, perhaps. Um, There was even, I think, a thousand things to see before you die, which I thought was a little bit ambitious for for most of us. We're not going to get around that. And then it just spawned this whole load of... 100 movies to see before you die, 100 TV shows to see before you die, 100 CDs to listen to before you die, 100 meals to eat before you die. Uh, That included things like a hot dog, well that's pretty straightforward, and crocodile, which is a little less easy to get your hands on. But it's convenient when someone else has done all the work of sifting through all of reality and said, here you go, here's your bucket list, this is what you need to do to get your money's worth. Um, It's convenient. And so I'm trying to do an equivalent of that tonight. Here are some five truths same-sex attracted Christians need to hear in brackets before they die. Um, And I'm sure that they will be truths actually many of us need to hear. Uh, The first is this, your identity is in Christ. Uh, The most fundamental truth of any Christian believer is that they are joined to Christ. They are one with Christ, one with my Lord. I cannot die. It's a glorious 
doctrine in the New Testament. It reminds us that as well as being our teacher, our master, our savior, and our friend, Jesus is also, in one sense, our location. And it shows us that we're to think of ourselves not just as those who follow Jesus, who obey Jesus, who worship Jesus, who imitate Jesus, but who are in Jesus. Now, some of you have asked where I'm from in England. I'm from a town called Maidenhead, which has no distinction other than being next door to Windsor, which means I live in the royal county of Berkshire and in the royal borough of Windsor and Maidenhead. And uh, it's nice having a royal thing in your, in your place name. Uh, it means I get free entry to Windsor Castle. That's pretty much the only perk, I think, of, of being a resident of the royal borough. But it is not the only royal place in which I find myself. When I put my trust in Jesus, I was joined to him. I am in him, and he is in me. And far from being an obscure aspect of the Christian life found in some dusty corner of the New Testament, it is the key way of understanding our relationship to Jesus. The most common way Christian believers are referred to in the New Testament is not Christian. But those who are in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord. That is who we are. We don't just vote Jesus from some enormous distance. We are now united to him. Uh, Let me show you this, uh, just one of the outworkings of this. It's a wonderful, um, one of my favorite passages. John chapter 17, and Jesus' great high priestly prayer. If you want to turn your way to John 17, if you've got Bibles with you, or on your devices, or whatever it is you, or your parchment, whatever, tablets, whatever, you know, whatever you're into. Uh, In this passage, uh, Jesus is praying from verse 20 for those who will believe in him, which includes us. This is Jesus praying for us. If you didn't know you were in the Bible, here you are. Jesus is praying for you here. And one of the big things Jesus prays is that his people would be one. So verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, And loved them even as you loved me. Um, That is an astonishing verse. Again, verse 26 I made known to them your name, and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Being united to Jesus means the love with which the Father has eternally loved the Son is now the same love with which he loves 
us. What the Father and the Son have had going, we now get to have with the Father by being in Jesus. You are as loved by the Father as the Son is. Um, I had a long-haul flight um, a few years ago, and when I booked the ticket, I remembered that a friend of mine flies for that airline and occasionally flies that particular route. So I dropped him an email and said, I've just booked a ticket with with your airline, booked on this this route, I know you sometimes fly that. Any chance you'll be flying me? And he he got back to me a a little while later and said, yep, I've I've rejigged the rosters. I'm going to be flying you that day. And uh, I turned up in the departure lounge. I thought I'd better wear a jacket and tie. Just in case, you know, if he was wanting to make me sit anywhere nearer the front of the plane, that I would <laughs> look like someone who would, be, who would belong. Just in case. You never know. And uh, he came into the departure lounge. He was dressed all captainy like And came up to me and said, Now... Make sure you are the last person to board the plane. And then when the cabin crew greets you, tell them that you are a friend of mine. So this sounds promising, potentially. So I waited for everyone else, eventually got on the plane. And the cabin crew immediately said, oh, you were the captain, aren't you? And I said, I am. And they said, well, well, follow follow us. And we turned left, which is always a, a good sign. And we walked through business and through first, and I was thinking, what else is after first? I mean, goodness me. <laughs> the cockpit is after first. So they took me into the cockpit to meet my friend. He pointed to the, um, the jump seat behind him and the first officer and said, why don't you sit there? And being a, a plain geek, I thought, yes, I'm going to sit in the cockpit of a, of a big jumbo jet. This is amazing. And I stayed there for the whole flight. I think they've changed laws of aviation now to... <laughs> Keep people like me as far away from the cockpit as possible. But it was wonderful. Uh, Several hours of flying. And what made it even more special was that the crew could not do enough for me. So they would bring me the first class menu and say, anything you want to eat or drink, just let us know and we'll, we'll happily provide it for you. They kept fussing and checking and making sure I was happy and had everything I wanted. They said, listen, if you want to pop into first and, and have a, a snooze or watch a movie, you're very welcome to. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to have a better in-flight movie than this. It was just amazing. And at the end of the flight, the, the, the plane's bursar came up to me and said, thank you so much for being with us today. I've, I've got you a bag of, of gifts on behalf of the airline as a thank you. And it included champagne and and souvenirs and uh, I said to him the only thing I could think of saying which is anytime (laughs) my schedule is flexible if if you need me to come back at any point I will I will make some room (laughs) now friends all of that happened because and only because I was a guest of the captain Uh, If I had come onto that plane without that relationship, I would have been shoved right to the back where I belonged. But because I came in as his friend, I came in at his level. And every courtesy afforded him was extended to me. And Jesus is showing us in John 17 that when we come to the Father through the Son... We come in at the sun's level. 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That is what most defines us. You are not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your temptations. You are defined by your position in Jesus Christ. Um, A young student who's been battling with, with homosexuality for a number of years wrote to me uh, recently just to we'd been corresponding and he said I've had a bit of a breakthrough God I really feel as though God has told me that same-sex attraction may describe me but it doesn't define me and he said realizing that has made such a key difference to him Um, in 1st Corinthians uh, chapter 6 Uh, Paul explains why it is we need to be fleeing from sexual sin. Uh, Do turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 if you're able to. Paul says in uh, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. That is clear enough. Don't enter into negotiations. Don't try and come out with some agreement with it. Flee it. But the thing to know, if we are to flee from sin, is that our identity is in Christ. So verse 15, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Evidently, some of the Christians in Corinth were thinking the body doesn't matter. The body is no spiritual significance. So I can sleep with a prostitute and that's fine. And Paul says, when you do that as a believer, you cannot leave Jesus outside the brothel. You are taking the members of Christ... And making them members of a prostitute. He continues, verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Because you are united to Christ, flee from sexual sin. Friends, it makes such a difference to know our Christian identity. I don't know if you've heard of imposter syndrome. If you've not heard of it, I'm sure you will be familiar with it. It's the feeling, in whatever context you might be, that you are a fraud. You're no good at what it is people think you are good at. No matter how competent you are, whatever you manage to achieve, it feels like, well, that was just a fluke. Any moment now, everyone is going to realize, I cannot do this. You ever had that feeling? Well, I'm sure so many of us have that feeling in the context of the Christian life. And so when we find ourselves trying to resist temptation, there's a little voice in our head saying, stop trying to be someone you're not. 
Stop kidding yourself. This sin is who you are. This is what you do. Stop trying to be this other guy that you are not. But my union with Christ reminds me, no, actually, that pursuit of holiness is who I am. Because who I am has now changed. And so when Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, he's saying, this is how to be who you now are as someone who is in Christ. Be your real, true Christian self. And it's therefore when you are pursuing Christ-likeness that you are most going with the grain of who you really are. Friends, it is when I am walking in sin that I'm not being true to who I really am. It is when I'm pursuing holiness that I am most truly being who I am because of who I most truly am is in Jesus and counted righteous in him. Does that make sense? Good. Now that makes sense, we can do the second one. If it didn't make sense, we'd have to do that one again. So you answered well. Second point, discipleship is hard. Discipleship is hard. Just turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 1 and verse 15, a well-known verse I'm sure for many of us, Jesus' first words in Mark's gospel, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, in other words, all that history's been waiting for is about to happen. The kingdom of God is at hand, all the big things God has ever said he's going to do, he's now going to do because I'm here. And the response to that is, repent. Repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, sure, you know, repentance means to turn around in your thinking. I used to say it's, it's like doing a 360-degree turn. And then I realized if you do a 360-degree turn, you end up facing the way you were already facing. <laughs> so it's a 180-degree turn. Uh, The trouble is, it's easy to do a 360-degree turn and think we're still being Christian. No, Jesus says we need to turn around. You see, all of us, as it turns out, have an orientation problem. It's spiritual. I was uh, running some errands back home uh, going along our, our main street, needed to pop into a, a store to get something, and being, my mind was in kind of screensaver mode, and I wasn't really paying attention to reality. And I was walking along the street, and I suddenly realized I'd walked straight past the store I meant to go into. And I thought, ah, I need to turn around. But I can't just turn around on the middle of the sidewalk, because people would think I'm strange. It's exhausting being English. You've got absolutely no idea. (laughs) So I thought, well, I could either pop into a different store, pretend to look at something for a moment, then come back out and turn the other way around. (laughs) Or, and I commend this to you, I, I crossed over the street, came back, crossed over the street again, and then went into the store. But either way, I needed to repent. Do you see? I needed to turn around. And Jesus says... 
there is something fundamentally lined up in the wrong direction about all of us. And one of the key facets of being someone who is believing in the gospel is that we have to repent. We have to turn from things. We have to do some radical reorientation. That is not going to be easy. Uh, Later on in Mark's gospel, in chapter 8, he puts it in these terms. Um, He says to the crowd in Mark 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, familiar words, but let me just remind us of what they mean. If anyone, okay, this is not just one group of Christians, that the particularly committed lot. If anyone is going to come after Jesus, let him deny himself. That does not mean you give up chocolate for Lent. Uh, To deny something is to say no to it. To deny yourself is to say no to yourself. Yourself is the problem here. It turns out Jesus is non-affirming of all of us. Because you, at your deepest level, need to be denied. Jesus says, take up your cross. In the Roman world, the person who took up their cross was the person who's just been sentenced to crucifixion, you would pick up your cross and you would carry it to the place of your execution. And from the moment you picked up your cross, your life was forfeit and you had no rights. And so on the way to your crucifixion, the crowds could do to you anything they chose. And some historians of the day record that so badly had the crowd abused certain criminals that the criminals were actually relieved to arrive at the place where they would be crucified. Of all the pictures available to Jesus of what it's like to be his disciple, he chooses that. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Jesus is describing discipleship as being like losing your life. Or to put it another way, there, there is going to be a time, if you've not experienced it already, when following Jesus feels like it's killing you. Uh, there will be a time when Jesus puts his finger on something that feels sacred to you, something you feel like you need to live, and he will meddle with it, and he may even remove it. In John chapter 15, Jesus describes himself as the vine, us as the branches, and God the Father as the master gardener. And the gardener's job is is to prune, to cut back the fruitful branches so that they will be even more fruitful. 
Now, we've got a plot of land next to our church with uh, some lovely trees and plants and shrubs. And every few months, we have a big kind of effort to kind of tidy it up and do some some work and and gardening on it. And I was given the job of, of pruning a tree. And so I was there snipping away quite merrily. And the person who was overseeing our yard work came up to me and said, you've got to cut the branches far more deeply. I was nibbling around the edges. I was giving the the tree a nice short back and sides, kind of smartening it up a bit. She said, you've got to cut right back. And the thing I realized that day was when you prune something properly, it looks like you hate it. You are lopping whole branches off. And all you're left with is is bleeding stumps. And it looks cruel and it looks wasteful. But that is pruning. And Jesus says that is what it means to be a Christian. To be joined to the vine. Discipleship is going to be hard. When those divine cutters come down, it may well look and feel cruel and wasteful. It's going to hurt. Jesus, the the, the Father rather, is going to cut away things that are very, very painful to lose. But if that all sounds terribly negative, that the single purpose for it all is overwhelmingly positive. Whoever loses his life will save it. The one the Father prunes, he prunes precisely to make us more fruitful. So there will be significant costs and pains in discipleship. But those costs and pains will always be worth it. Uh, Several months ago, I went through a, a period of maybe four or five weeks of very, very intense anxiety and depression and uh, it was that kind of anxiety where you begin being anxious about one thing and then your everything else jumps in the party as well and anything you can be anxious about you are anxious about and any tiny worry you ever had is suddenly turned up to full volume and you can't hear anything else I was anxious about singleness I was anxious about being same-sex attracted I was anxious about loneliness I was anxious about being anxious It's always a fun one as a Christian. But I remember thinking at one point in the midst of that bleakness, if God can somehow use that experience to make me even a tiny bit more like Jesus, it will be well worth it. I couldn't say that at every point. I couldn't say that every day. But it is true And when it comes to to same-sex attraction, this is the change we most need. This is the change that is promised. Not that we might become more and more heterosexual, but that we might become more and more 
holy, more and more like Christ. Discipleship is hard. And we're very conscious, perhaps, of the particular cost for those with same-sex attraction. But the point is that cost is just a type of the cost all of us are called to bear. Uh, whenever people come up to me and say, well, well, the gospel's harder for you, though, isn't it? Because it goes right against who you really are. I always want to say, well, actually, my sexual feelings are not who I really am. Thank you very much. But secondly, if you feel as though the gospel is just conveniently slotted into your life with no particular adjustment... I'm not sure it's the gospel of this Jesus you've received. And one of the reasons the evangelical world is beginning to balk at the cost of faithfulness to Christ for Christians who are same-sex attracted is because we're not counting the cost of discipleship for ourselves. Discipleship is hard. Number three... God's word is good. It is good because it is clear. As we were seeing last night, we, we think what we think about homosexuality because we think what we think about marriage. Uh, last night, was it, I think, we looked at Mark 7 and how all these things come from within. One of those things that defiles us that comes from within is what we have translated sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia, which means any kind of sexual behavior outside of marriage. Jesus teaches sex outside the covenant of marriage is defiling of us. It is sinful. Now turn with me, if you would, to to Matthew chapter 19 which is the most important passage in the Bible about homosexuality, and it's not about homosexuality. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That is a genius question. Now, we know they're not trying to learn from Jesus. They're not after his wisdom. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. Jesus, can you, can you divorce your wife for any reason? It's one of those questions where if you answer yes or no, you're in trouble. If I was to ask you, have you stopped being an idiot yet? Yes or no. Either way, you're an idiot. It's one of those kinds of questions. If Jesus says, no, of course you can't. What a ridiculous notion. They can say, Jesus, well, you are very out of touch with contemporary culture. And by the way, they wait until the very right place to ask this question. They wait until they're in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, which is the stomping ground of one Herod. Do you remember what happened to John the Baptist? Friends, I feel moved to say this as a a friend of you all. John the Baptist did not endorse Herod. (laughs) And say, well, Abraham was a sinner and Moses was a sinner and David was a sinner. 
Abraham was repentant, Moses was repentant, and David was repentant. John the Baptist called Herod to repent of his sin and was eventually killed for it. So when they say to Jesus, here, is it all right to divorce your wife for any, any reason? It's a trap. If Jesus says, yeah, that's fine, they can say, Jesus, you are soft on sin. But look at how Jesus responds. It's a, it's, anytime you think you've got Jesus in a bit of a headlock, you're going to get clobbered. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The very first thing Jesus says to these Pharisees is, have you not read? Now Pharisees prided themselves on how well they knew the scriptures. They memorized swathes of the Old Testament. Passages that you might struggle to read once, they knew off by heart. And the very first thing Jesus says is, haven't you read? And then quotes Genesis 1. (laughs) Hey Pharisees, when you did your theological training, did you get as far as, I don't know, Genesis chapter 1 in your Bible reading? (laughs) The next thing he does is he shows them just how high the stakes are. Notice carefully what Jesus says. He who created them from the beginning, that is God, made them male and female and said, and then he quotes the narrator of Genesis 2. Jesus is saying the author of Genesis is ultimately he who created them from the beginning. In other words, Jesus isn't appealing to ancient wisdom, insights from the past. No, this is the Creator's blueprint for how we are to live. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, to understand divorce, you have got to understand marriage. And notice verse 4, to understand marriage, you have got to understand gender. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, we have this thing called marriage. As far as Jesus is concerned, however countercultural it might be, marriage is predicated on gender. It is because we are male and female, we have this thing called marriage. The two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Now, please notice... um, The issue here is not whether people of the same gender can have feelings of of love and faithfulness to one another. It is not the quality or strength of the feelings Jesus is referring to. It is the nature of the union that results. And Jesus says the union of one man and one woman is uniquely a one-flesh union. 
Well, as Jesus begins to unpack that one flesh union, in verse 10, the disciples freak out and say to him, if this is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. I mean, Jesus, this is sounding a little bit serious. This is sounding a bit like commitment. (laughs) One flesh, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Maybe we'll give marriage a bit of a miss. I've got to say, looking at their reaction, verse 10 has has challenged me to think about the way I preach on marriage. I'm preaching at two weddings uh, this summer. And this verse makes me think, actually, the sign that you have preached the Christian view of marriage is that you get the reaction of verse 10. So memo to me, rather than preaching a hallmark greeting card, princess bride, mowage, love (laughs) kind of sermon I will have been faithful if half the congregation say at the end of the service whoa I think I will give marriage a miss that is the reaction of the disciples and notice the moment they question getting married Jesus talks to them about eunuchs (laughs) he talks about those who are celibate Do you see the implication? The only godly alternative to marriage is celibacy. So Jesus teaches that any sexual behavior outside of a marriage is sinful, and marriage is between a man and a woman, and the only alternative to marriage that is godly is singleness and celibacy. God's word is clear. The issue is not fundamentally what does Paul think of first century homosexuality. The issue is what does Jesus think of marriage? And even if those other passages that refer to homosexuality were not in the Bible, we would still know what to think. God's word is good because it's clear. It's good in what it commands. David can say in Psalm 19, the commands of the Lord are radiant. Just think about that. The commands of the Lord, not the promises that you kind of crochet into a nice little thing and frame and put up on the wall. The commands of the Lord are radiant. Can you imagine saying that of anyone else in this world? You get back from work and your spouse says, honey, how was your day? And you say, do you know what? My boss today gave me a whole ton of stuff to do. And do you know what? His commands were radiant. (laughs) It was just that the things he told me to do, it was just beautiful. No, the commands of the Lord are radiant because the Lord himself is radiant. And therefore, anything this radiant Lord calls us to do is good and beautiful and right. And as we walk in his ways and live in obedience to his commands, it brings home his goodness to us. He really does know better. 
Again, we get these things the wrong way around. We think, well, I don't like that command, so I'm not going to do it. The reason you don't like that command is because you are not doing it. The only way you stand a chance of liking that command is by obeying it and seeing the goodness of it. May well be some of us this evening don't like God's word because we're not obeying it. Psalm 139, we all know well about the God who knows us through and through. Friends, there is no one who knows you better than God does. There is no one who loves you more than God does. There is no one more committed to your joy than God. His word is sometimes infuriating. It is often hard, but it is always good. I mentioned last night, John six thirty-five. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. It's one of my favorite verses, and it's one of my least favorite verses. I first read that verse as Jesus going through his resume. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And oh, by the way, in case you didn't know this one, I'm also the bread of life. And that's a good one, isn't it? But actually, I read it now as a rebuke. I'm the bread of life. Uh, one of the things I battle with in same-sex attraction is, is falling in love with whoever feels like is my best friend. Uh, that is the way my same-sex attraction seems to, to work. I'll form a deep friendship with someone, some kind of emotional sense of clicking, and the friendship can become sexualized. And I just want to ride off into the sunset with that person. And yet Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm the bread of life. He's not. I am. My ultimate fullness and security will only be found in Christ That is a wonderful thing to hear, and it is a deeply, deeply painful thing to hear. But it's a jolly good thing to hear. You don't use the word jolly much, do you? It's a great word. Number four, church is vital. Friends, turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Uh, Some years ago, I had lunch with a a guy who had come to one of our Christmas carol services and came up to me afterwards and said, I'm really interested in Jesus. And he he asked that question that you just love being asked as a pastor. He said, "Um, listen, I know you're really busy, and I don't want to be a, a pain in the neck or an inconvenience to you, but 
Would it, would it be all right if we had lunch and you told me about what it means to follow Jesus? Would, would that be okay? I'd probably squeeze something into my schedule for that. You know, I'll cancel everything else, frankly, whatever else is going on that day. So I had lunch with this guy. He was very open with me about being in a gay relationship. He'd been with his particular partner for a good 20 years. And he said to me, well, what would Jesus think of my relationship? What does Jesus think about homosexuality? And I remember thinking, that's not where I would start, <laughs> frankly. But it's where he wants to start, so that's where we are. So I tried to walk him through as carefully as I could what Jesus says about sex and marriage and why that is. And he thought about it for a moment, and he just looked at me and said, and he told me his life's story about how many times he'd been beaten up for being gay. And he said, Sam, my partner is without doubt the best thing that has ever happened to me in my life. What could possibly be worth giving that up for? And he just stared at me. And I looked back thinking, that's a good question. I said to him, that's a really good question. And I remember praying, thinking, Lord, that's, that's a really good question. Bit of air cover would be, would be nice right now. And this verse came to mind, Mark 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. Now, knowing Peter, he could be bragging. Hey, Jesus, we've left it all. We're the heroes. Or he could be despairing. Jesus, I have left everything to follow you. You do know that, don't you? I'm all in on this. I had a career. But Jesus responds by saying, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now I could have answered my friend's question by saying, well, you get heaven at the end. You get salvation. Those things are wonderfully true. But it felt like a ground-level here-and-now question that needed a ground-level here-and-now answer. And this is the answer. Jesus assumes there will be things we have to leave to follow him. And he assumes the most costly things will be relational and familial. There are people who do have to leave behind the very closest of relationships to follow Jesus. But notice Jesus doesn't say, yes, just grit your teeth and wait for heaven. No, Jesus says, in this age, it is worth it. Even in this age, Whatever you leave behind, Jesus will replace in godly kind and far greater measure. And again, he casts it in relational, familial terms. There is no one who will not receive a hundredfold houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and, yes, 
a good side order of persecutions. Jesus says it's never a bad deal following him. Jesus promises, however much we leave behind, we will experience a net increase in family. A net increase in intimacy and community. And friends, it is for those of us in churches to make sure that promise is true. I got this um, email from a, a guy I know a couple of weeks ago. He's been open with me about his same-sex attraction. And he just wrote this email in a, in a period of desperation and said, and I, I quote, The only possible way for me to enjoy the relational intimacy I've dreamed of my entire life is in the arms of another man. So what I want to know is, is the sacrifice worth it? In my head, I've always assumed it was, but the argument of just because it is no longer seems to hold any weight. I know the right answers to all my questions, but unfortunately, every one of my normal responses not only seems to have come up short, but also seems to have been filled to overflowing with a word I won't repeat now. And he concludes by saying, I cannot imagine the shell of a life I would live without somebody standing by my side. Ever since I can remember, I've wanted a life partner. Is it worth it? We need to look at the quality of relationships in our church communities before we can answer his question, don't we? People rightly say, don't start evangelizing a Muslim unless you're prepared to give up your spare room for them. Because if this goes the whole deal, they may well need a place to live. Friends, let me say, don't hold same-sex attracted people to lifelong celibacy if you are not prepared as a church family to give them intimacy. If your message is, go be single, off you go and good luck with that. Actually, you are undermining the promise of Jesus in these words. We can live without sex. We are not meant to live without intimacy. And it should be the experience of anyone who's had to leave relationships behind that in church they find they have far more intimacy than they ever had before. I know a lad who... um, came to faith recently from a, a practicing gay background and was convicted by the Lord pretty quickly, actually, of his sin of unbelief and his need for Jesus. And he felt led to break off his relationship and to, to move out. And we had the pleasure of, of baptizing him soon after that. And I remember a few months later checking in with him and saying, so, so what's it like now? I said, how are you finding things? Because you guys lived together for years. I said, is it, is it hard now that you're living on your own? And he said, yeah, it is a bit sometimes. It's, it's hard not having that person who's always there. 
But then he said, but do you know what? I've never had more friends in my life than I have now. Uh, We are not designed to cope with these issues on our own. We need each other and we need family. And our churches are to be family. Final point with which we close. The future is glorious. Paul reminds us the struggles we have in this world do not compare to the glory that is to come. There will be perfect intimacy in the new creation. Intimacy without the complications. We will be free from unwanted temptations and desires. We will have a perfect body with perfect bodily feelings. And we will be perfectly married to the perfect groom for all eternity. Um, A while ago, the New York Times ran an article on something that's been called Instagram Envy. Um, Instagram is the social media thing where you share pictures. And the nature of it means it, it tends to be the really nice pictures of your life that you share. That particularly good meal that you prepared. That lovely holiday view. That moment where the kids are actually doing something precocious and cute. And the cumulative effect of looking at everyone else's best moments is that it makes your normal life feel very, very drab indeed. And it leaves you with the impression that everyone else's life is far more glamorous and far more happy than yours. And the uh, person in the article wrote, scrolling through your Instagram feed, you feel suffocated by the fabulousness. And it's generated the anxiety that is known as fear of missing out, FOMO. Which is now so much of a thing, it's being studied by psychologists at Oxford. It is a deep anxiety. Am I getting my money's worth out of this short life? Because it looks like everybody else is. Well, it is the future God has promised us that delivers us from fear of missing out. It does not matter if you don't have the ideal marriage in this life because this isn't the only marriage you're going to have. It doesn't matter if I don't ever have the body I've always wanted or would most feel at home in because this isn't the only body I'm ever going to have. Those of you who've got chronic health conditions. Please know the body you suffer with now is not the only body you're ever going to have. And it doesn't ultimately matter if I don't find the deepest sense of community and intimacy I've always longed for because I will. The future is glorious. So friends, five truths same-sex attracted Christians need to hear, and I suspect five truths all of us need to hear. Let me pray for us as we finish. 
Our Father, we thank you for all that we are and all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we stand righteous before you in him, as loved by you as your own son. Father, we thank you that whilst discipleship is hard, it is hard in the very best kind of way. We thank you that your word is good, that you have good things to call us to do. Father, we thank you for putting us in communities of Christian brothers and sisters. And we thank you for the hope that we have that is far more real far more certain than anything this life has to offer. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.